Welcome to the BBXX podcast, Let's Get Intimate. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, and we're here to challenge the way our culture has conditioned us to talk about sexuality, intimacy, and healthy relationships. To question everything, to embark on a journey of self-understanding, and to begin to rewire some of the backwards thinking that we've absorbed from the subconscious influences that have shaped us all. Our hope for you, and for myself, and for all of us here at BBXX, who are here with you on this journey every day, is that through a better understanding of our own identity, of who we are, and why we are that way, we can form deeper connections with other people and live healthier, more fulfilling relationships as a result. Join us as we change the conversation and the culture surrounding intimacy and relationships. And remember that better relationships equals a better life. In today's interview with Ben Carney, we learn about his research studying long-term relationships, what makes them fail versus flourish, and what questions people probably should be asking themselves before getting married, but usually don't. We also discuss how cultural institutions reward couples who are married, the positive correlation between effective communication and sex, and how much of marriage success sometimes comes down to luck. Dr. Ben Carney has spent the past 15 years studying change and stability in intimate relationships, especially in the early years of marriage. Dr. Carney co-directs the Relationship Institute at UCLA, where he's also a professor of social psychology. He's also an adjunct behavioral scientist at the RAND Corporation, consults for the Strengthening Healthy Marriage Project, and is a two-time recipient of the National Council on Family Relations Reuben Hill Research and Theory Award for outstanding contributions to family science. Thanks so much for joining us oh, it's today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So to start out, if maybe you could just give us a description about what exactly it is you do and, and how you, you came to be here today studying what you do. Okay. So I am a professor of social psychology. Some people say, what's social psychology? And social psychology generally is a discipline, a uh, subset of psychology that studies uh, how normal people ig- exist and interact and make sense of the world of other humans around them. So it's really broad. Social psychologists study things like attitude change, why people do what they do, why people believe what they believe. And uh, a big focus of social psychology is interpersonal relationships. And so I have, for the whole part of my career, which is about the past uh, 25 years, been interested specifically in intimate relationships. And um, I'm not a therapist, I'm a, not a clinician, but I do want to understand how do people maintain intimate bonds with other people for long periods of time. And for most of my life, I've studied that question in the context of marriage, because marriage is a convenient place to study intimacy, because it has a really clear onset. You know when they start, people have a license, and there's a big party, and they know when they get married. And it has a very clear, legally defined ending, if it ends. 
which is not true of, let's say, dating relationships. I'm interested in non-marital intimacy, but it's harder to study because uh, people don't always agree when they started dating because it's not a good definition of what dating is. And they don't necessarily agree when they end because it's not a good definition of, well, what does it mean? When are we, when are we done? Nor do they even sometimes talk about when they begin and exactly. when they end, let alone agree. Exactly. But marriage is something, it's, it's hard to just say, oh, we just ended up married. Like you have to be deliberate about it. So it's just a convenient place. And for many adults, it's a very significant intimate relationship. So that's where I've studied uh, the questions that sort of have guided my work. And when did you find yourself kind of looking for those answers or, or wondering, you know, how do people stay in these long-term relationships? What was it from a personal perspective that drew you to that well, curiosity? For, from a personal perspective... Uh, I, you know, I was always fascinated by intimate relationships, and certainly it's something I thought a lot about as I had my first intimate relationships and was drawn to, to academics and psychology. And at one point, somebody asked me, what do you want to study? What, what would you want to spend the rest of your life thinking about? And after giving that some thought, I thought, well, I, I wouldn't mind getting paid to think about what I already think about all the time and what all my friends are thinking about all the time, which is, how do you make love last? Uh, I think what, what I found compelling is the idea that, I mean, again, it was a, both a personal and a professional question. When people fall in love, when I've fallen in love, and everyone I know, the only thing you want is to keep that feeling. Nobody wants to fall out of love. No one gets married and wants to get divorced. So what fascinates me is the idea that there's this powerful, positive experience that Many people, many people feel, smart people, good people, loving people, and all they want in the world is to hold on to that feeling. And I was, I'm one of those people. I've, I've, when I fall in love, I want to, that's all I want to do is stay feeling this. And yet that is so hard to do. That people, well-intentioned people, good, smart, loving people, can't accomplish this goal, this sort of very common goal. It's that hard. And it's puzzling and it's even scary that this great experience is so fragile for so many people. And I just couldn't get over that. I still can't. How difficult would you describe marriage and that lasting love you know, when people, I think when a lot of people get married, a lot of the hardest parts and the hardest stories are kind of hidden from social circles and all of that. So I think people have a concept and, you know, they know people say, oh, marriage isn't easy or, you know, you're going to have problems. But how would you kind of convey to people how <laughs> difficult it is to make this blind promise to somebody and say, you know, I have no idea what's going to happen probably some terrible stuff, don't know how you're going to change, don't know how I'll react, but we're in it to win it, and uh, yeah, as long as I'm alive, totally going to be by your side. How hard is it? Uh, here's When I talk to undergraduates, I teach my class, I start the class this t with that exact question, and here's how I answer it. I say, uh, you know who was a smart guy? Albert Einstein was a smart guy. And uh, he figured out a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff that a lot of people would think is pretty hard. 
like the relationship between matter and energy and the theory of relativity and all sorts of very complicated things about the, the universe. He was, able, he was smart enough to figure those things out. But those were not the hard things. The hard thing for Einstein was married and got divorced and was married again, but had affairs. He had two majorly difficult relationships in his life. For Einstein, the, the universe, that was the easy stuff. Love was the hard stuff. That's how hard love is. That you can be the smartest man of the 20th century and still find intimacy super challenging. That's how hard intimacy is. Nice. Um, you also used the term a uh, few minutes, or you previously used the term falling out of love. How would you describe that? Well, <clears throat> I, I would describe it as... Uh, an unwanted realization that someone that you thought you could commit to, someone that you thought thrilled you, no longer does. And, and social psychologists uh, are particularly sensitive to how attitudes do and don't change. So one thing that, that my colleagues study is how do people remain convinced of things that they care about no matter what the evidence is. And the world is full of, of, of examples of this, right? You talk to a person who has a political belief, who you know, is a member of one political party, try convincing them that they're wrong. No one's ever convinced that they're wrong. Whatever your opinion is about abortion, no one's going to convince you that you're wrong. A gun control? No one's going to ever convince anybody on the other, other side. Nobody changes their minds about anything. Except about this. We know, social psychologists know, that you're, we're especially unlikely to change our minds if you declare a position publicly. So if you actually say something like, here's my opinion, then now it would be embarrassing to change your mind. So you're even less likely to change your mind. So imagine if what I do is I invite all my favorite people into one place and I s stare at them all and I swear, I promise I'm going to stay with the person standing next to me for the rest of my life. That is a belief that sh should never change because people don't change their minds easily. They rationalize, they explain away. It's very hard to get people to change their minds. And yet they do anyway. That's a mystery. And yet about this valuable thing, even though it would be, it's very embarrassing and it's costly and it's painful to change your mind about your marriage or your love, it still happens. That's what I find so poignant and so mysterious about love, is that it changes even though it shouldn't, even though we don't want it to, and even though other beliefs don't. This one does. So you mentioned people changing their mind, but do you think that there's ever the case, how sure do you think people have made up their mind beforehand? Uh, I could ask that question. Consciously and subconsciously. You know, I, I get to ask that question a lot. Because a lot of my work involves asking people, how do you feel about your relationship? And, and people who hear about my work ask, do you trust people? And they say they're very in love. Oh, maybe they're just fooling themselves. Uh, my tendency is to believe people when they speak. Is to say, if you say you're in love, I believe you. And, and if I believe what they say, then the question is, I'm going to believe them over, I, what we do is we follow couples over time. And some people who say, I'm in love. I don't ever want to leave this relationship. And you follow them up a year later, three years later, 10 years later, and they say the same thing. 
They're like, I still feel like I'm in love. I still don't want to leave this relationship. And other times, other people who start out at the same place, saying, I'm in love. I don't want to leave. You follow them up. They're like, oh, I'm sort of in love. I'm pretty in love. And then they're like, oh, actually, I left. I didn't, I changed my mind. Uh, it didn't work out anymore. It's, the relationship changed. My experience changed. So I, I think that people are telling the truth to themselves and to others. And then things change. I think relationships change. And people change. And their feelings change. They don't want them to change. It's not on purpose, but it happens. And, and people respond honestly to those changes. And do you think those changes are reversible? Or do you think that, you know, they shouldn't be forced and that people should be able to, can just like cycle through relationships? And that's how kind of, especially now that the construct and kind of the way relationships are shaped by society and norms and culture now is so different that people should be allowed that natural cycle? Or do you think that that is something reversible that people should work to get back to if they have made that legal promise? Well, I, I tr- generally I try to stay out of the should business yeah. and uh, sort of try to say, hey, I'm just trying to describe what's out there. Uh, I, I'm certainly going to say, personally, I believe that people have the right to decide for themselves what makes them satisfied. And uh, no one, in, I'm speaking now as a person, not as a scientist, no one should stay in a relationship that makes them unhappy. Mm-hmm. Well, unhappy, I don't mean definitely not, but, you know, isn't that up, up in a way carried off their feet anymore, more of that kind of what many relationships tend to default back to as a natural state Well, after a certain amount of time? Then, uh, uh, and I, I think relationships do all sorts of things. So I would also I would also shy away from relationships falling back to some natural state. Yeah. Some people's natural state is uh, giddy adoration of each other that lasts for years and years and decades. That that happens. Um, and then other people are in relationships that are not thrilling, and maybe were never that thrilling. And some relationships shift from from thrilling to not thrilling and back and forth. W- what interests me is. How do relationships change? You know, what is, what's the engine? What drives those changes? But then how do people make decisions? So those are two separate questions. You know, the question of what makes the current emotional tone of the relationship, what it is. That's sort of one domain of inquiry that's fascinating to me. Another is, how do people decide whether to stay or leave a relationship? And that's a different thing, right? There's people who decide to stay in a relationship that isn't that great, that maybe you or I wouldn't stay in because there's lots of reasons why people make the decisions they make. One reason that I might stay in a relationship is this relationship is thrilling. But it ain't the only reason. I might stay in this relationship because I think it's good for my kids. I might stay in this relationship because being in this relationship is better than the alternatives available to me. You know, like this relationship maybe even isn't so hot, but it's better than being homeless. It's better than being alone, maybe. So the the way people make the way people make decisions about their relation about whether to stay or leave is is truly fascinating. <clears throat> but it's separate from the idea of what makes a bond between two people close and emotional and emotionally fulfilling, uh, or not, or or less so. 
And how does that bond itself evolve over time and respond to circumstances? My work is focused mostly on that question and less on the question of how do people sort of, once they've evaluated their relationship, mm-hmm. decide whether to stay or leave. Yeah. Could you give an example of kind of one of the most impactful things you've learned perhaps from from somebody else or from a couple that you guys have studied or anything like that? Sure. Um, I, now, so we, we've studied thousands of couples over the last 25 years. We usually, off, we often start with newlywed couples. So we bring couples who've just been married and are quite happy. And we usually um, ask them a bunch of questions. We interview the, the husband and the wife separately. So far, we've done all of our work in the context of, of different sex relationships. Um, we're excited to study same-sex relationships. We haven't yet, n- not in our lab. We always videotape them first. Mm-hmm. So we now have recordings of these couples who've just been married talking about issues in the relationship. And then we follow them over time. And one of the questions that we ask them is, you know, what is your background like? What do you, what do you like? Well, what kind of personality do you have? But we also ask them, what's your life like? Where do you live? What's the stress in your life? How much time do you have flexible to yourself? Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest, most impactful things that couples have told us is that even as newlyweds, the quality of their lives varies a great deal. Some people start out their marriage with a lot of good fortune and, and solid resources behind them. Good jobs, healthy, families that love them, good connections to other people. And what we found is if, if you're starting out in an environment with a lot of resources, that makes intimacy easier. And other couples, from the very beginning, even though they're just as in love, they don't have a lot of those same resources. Some people don't have good jobs, don't have jobs that they like, don't have enough money don't have physical health, they've got health problems or family members with health problems, or they just have bad luck, bad things happen to them, illness, accidents, natural disasters. The biggest thing that's come out of our work is that intimate relationships are hugely affected by events that are totally outside the relationship and beyond couples' control. And that is, is something that I think is easily overlooked. You know, you, all the self-help books. Sorry, all the self-help books say uh, to couples, "Well, you know, listen hard, work hard. Relationships are hard work, and they are." But the implication is, if something goes wrong, well, you didn't work hard enough, or you just didn't know how to listen better. Shame on you. And our work says, or tries to say, uh, it's not always shame on you. Some people got dealt some a bad hand. And you can make the best you can of that bad hand, but it's still a bad hand. And relationships are going to be easier for people with better luck and harder for people with bad luck. And we've seen this in a lot of different ways. And it makes me think differently about you know what, how to help people have better relationships. I always wonder in terms of when people have to go through something extremely challenging, a loss or a problem with addiction or yes. something, an illness, um, before they get married, 
it's kind of this test. And if you can make it through that, then they're so much more likely. And I, I just wonder for those people in the beginning who are just kind of floating down easy street and they might be there forever and be surrounded by that support system and not be tested and not have this tragic event. But if they do <laughs> and they haven't been tested before, I'm always so concerned for those people. And I imagine that while in the beginning it's tougher for people, at least long term, you know, they have more resilience built up versus those other people that, you know, something might just pinch the raft and you're going, you're going to go down. Excellent point. And we think about it in exactly that language, that stress is a test. Now, all else being equal, I'd love to not be tested, right? Who wants to take a test? Oh, no, I'd love to not be tested. But those tests are going to come. And some people get tested more than others, unfortunately. But so the question is, what happens when your relationship is tested? And it's interesting. It's a question that, that I ask young couples or couples that are thinking about getting married, which is, well, imagine that, you're, that you've been tested. Because if you imagine that you're on your honeymoon, it's easy to have intimacy on a beach with a drink with a paper umbrella in it. Everything's easy when you've got a drink with a paper umbrella in it. That's my, that's my opinion. But what, where, the, where you learn about intimacy is in the dark times. Where you learn about the, your bond with somebody else is in the middle of the night when the baby's crying and you both have work in the morning and you just feel like you, you're at your, your wit's end. That's when you learn about what your partner is made of and what your relationship is made of. And the question you know, that, that couples can ask themselves early on is not, is this a person I enjoy the good times with but is this the person i want to share the bad times with because there's going to be bad times in every in every life there's going to be rain and uh we find that that is in fact really diagnostic and couples who who make it through the test who pass the test can end up stronger absolutely okay. passing the test ends up stronger unfortunately not passing the test or the, those tests can also leave scars and um uh, we've been studying for for many years. You know what kind? What is it that helps couples get through stress and maintain their bonds versus experience stress as a as a way of damaging their bonds? That's kind of been central to what, what we do. There's this quote from this movie, 180 Degrees South, and they say, "When everything goes wrong, that's when the real adventure starts." And I think that I don't know if I'd say adventure, but that's when everything kind of starts or is or is that's when you find out that's when you you know experience the intimacy that you were talking about in those tests um so in your guys' studies when you're referring to finding out what what is the most important in getting through those tough times and that stress what have you guys found well <clears throat> we we look at three general classes of variables or um sources of influence on relationships to, that matter in those moments. And none of this is rocket science. None of this would be surprising to you, but, but we try, these are the things we try to fit together. One large theme is qualities of the two partners. So that's got to matter, right? Different people bring to the relationship more or less capabilities maintaining intimacy. Some people are pretty good at intimacy and would be good in all circumstances with any partner. 
some people bring vulnerabilities to the relationship that's going to be you know a, either history of addiction history of mental illness maybe parents who were not happy with each other you know a lack of good models of successful intimacy and those vulnerabilities will be brought into play when stressful times hit so we're interested in we measure that we say you know who's got more or fewer of these kind of vulnerabilities who's got more or fewer of these capabilities that's one theme the qualities of the individual that's got to matter another theme is the quality of the processes between the couples so that's where our videotapes come in our observations of the couples come in some people are really good at this they they know how to communicate without defensiveness they know how to compromise they know how to ask questions that's something that we really see a lot um that there's a big difference between saying i know why you're doing that and why are you doing that you know one closes down the conversation one opens it up so we're looking at what happens in the conversation that allows couples to stay connected or pushes them far apart from each other and the third so that's the second big theme is what they're doing the third big theme is where 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 is this happening what is the environment in which the relationship is taking place some couples are facing their stress with lots of resources with wealth you know some couples there's couples that are just affluent couples living in great neighborhoods and when the car breaks down they're like oh man i guess i'll take the other car there's other couples that are living in lower income communities because they have lower income where the same thing oh the car broke down can really be a disaster that means i can't get to work there's no public transportation i might be fired like this is a problem the same stressor is much more problematic for people who are in disadvantaged environments and we've done a lot of our work in low income communities trying to see well what are what resources do people rely on when they're financially strapped one thing we've been looking at is social connections that some people might be two couples might be equally financially challenged but one couple is connected socially so they've got social capital to draw upon another couple isolation that would be like a second problem for those couples mm-hmm. so those are our three themes that we look at qualities of the individuals qualities of their behavior and qualities of their environment and all of those things seem really really vital for getting through stressful periods in the relationship i think that that social circle is so important in that support not only to have an outlet if you can talk to people or even just having support and having providers for certain needs outside of expecting everything from one partner and it's just so interesting because social circles now they're realizing is basically also your longevity it's your happiness it's the success of your marriage and your longevity um social circles is just everything there's a real bird there's a burgeoning interest in the effect of our social ties on health as you say on mortality on longevity and you'd be surprised that at how strong those effects are and therefore you'd also expect well then it's got to affect our relationships as well but that actually runs counter to a lot of self-help about intimacy which says focus on your partner you know devote more time to your partner invest in your relationship and that's all good advice but if you're doing so 
to the exclusion of your other social ties. Yeah, I think it's almost you have to maintain all intimacy, including kind of familial friendship, intimacy to to have balance and to be able to then put that focus and that energy into your partner as well. Absolutely, absolutely. But that can be a little counterintuitive. Yeah. Um, I had a couple small comments. When you were going through kind of what helps get people through stress um, and outside of obviously a formal research kind of quantifiable uh, quantifiable factors. I wonder if there's anything about just simple but vital things such as sense of humor or, you know, having fun and how much that plays into helping people get through stress. Uh, that's something we actually, you'd be surprised, that actually is pretty quantifiable. Um, so, you know, what we do is when we have these, we have all these videotapes and we have teams that review the tapes, rating them second by second on various dimensions. And uh, one, of the th- work, so one of the studies we're doing now rates each moment of the interaction along two dimensions. And one is, at this moment, how cooperative or uncooperative is the spouse being? So you can imagine that we could be agreeing on, like, oh, what a great idea. I'd be very cooperative. Mm-hmm. I'd be like, that's a terrible idea. There's no way we're doing that. to be uncooperative. Yeah. But at the exact same time, the raters are rating how a dim- uh, on a, couples on a dimension we call affiliative or affiliation, which is to say how connected are we being versus disconnected. So you can imagine that even if I, I can be uncooperative, but still be leaning in, like, that's a terrible idea, but I but I'm engaged in the interaction, I'm engaged with you. I, the, the second dimension that they're coding at the same time is how affiliative each spouse is being at every second. So this is a, not about whether we're agreeing or disagreeing, but how connected we're being at the same moment. I can disagree with you and still be engaged and still be sort of even affectionate or even with a sense of humor. I can say, oh, no, that's a silly idea, but with a smile on my face and leaning in. Yeah. And... Uh, when you do that, when you code both those things at the same time, you can see which of those things drives the feelings about the relationship more strongly. And it turns out that if, you, if the spouses who are expressing a high level of affiliation, it doesn't matter how cooperative or uncooperative they are. And that, I think, is, is it speaks to the intuition that you started with, that if we're connected and can express a little humor and even a little bit of affection, we can disagree all we want. It doesn't matter for the relationship because relationships are not about agreeing. It's, they're about connecting. I just want to write that down. Relationships aren't about agreeing. They're about connecting. And sometimes you, can, you need to agree to connect, but sometimes connection is very different. It's about understanding. Well, it's a, really, it's a good point. People disagree in their relations about different issues. And some of the problems that couples have, they got to get resolved. And people, and some of those disagreements, if they don't get resolved, are real problems. Like, are we going to have kids or not? That's a zero-sum game. We have to decide it, and we can't, can't, we can't compromise. We can't have half a kid. We can't have a kid on one day, and then tomorrow we'll try not having a kid. So that's a problem that really needs to get solved. But you know what? Most problems are not like that. Most problems, there are 
plenty of ways to compromise or just live with the disagreement. Most of the time, when we pick someone for a long-term relationship or a marriage, we're picking a set of problems that will never get resolved. So we're looking at our partners not to say, ah, oh, these are the problems we've got to solve, but rather, these are the problems we've got to learn to live with. And that's a different question. Not, can we solve this? Can we resolve this? But can I live with this mm-hmm. unresolved? Can we navigate it? Yes. Can we navigate it? Can we figure out a way to have this problem? That th- oh, yeah, this is our problem. Oh, sure, sure. This is, this is that problem we have. That's us. The BBXX podcast, Let's Get Intimate, is produced by Sasha Laurie in Berkeley, California. Dialogue, narrative, and content crafting by Amy Soper. Audio editing, good music vibes, and sound mixing, Daniel Herrera. You can learn more on our website or on our social media at bbxx.world. And if you believe in what we're doing, please do help spread the love by sharing this with someone you care about. Until next time. Thank you.